2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Sociology. My name is Michael Johnston. I am your host today. Today we have Hugo Gorte, uh, who is professor of sociology at University of Stavanger. His research on creative work, small groups, and culture has been published in numerous outlets, including major journals like Sociological Theory, Social Psychology Quarterly, and Sociological Forum. He recently worked with Patrick Aspers on Qualitative Methods, which was published by Qualitative Sociology in 2019, and in 2021, the journal published a symposium issue based on the original work of this project. Today, though, we'll be discussing his ethnographic book, Dangerous Fun, The Social Lives of Big Wave Surfers, which was published by the University of Chicago Press in June 2022. Thank you for joining me today, Hugo. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. So, so to begin with, what um, brought you to this project, Dangerous Fun, the social lives of big wave surfers? Uh, this is a project that I
0: started a long time ago. Uh, I just at the time this was two thousand seven. I just had finished uh, uh, my second master in sociology from East Carolina University in in Greenville, North Carolina. And uh, during that time, I finished my first ethnographic project uh, of the study of a community of professional BMXers that is uh, basically skateboarding on little kids' bikes. And I was thinking about uh, where should I do my PhD? Where where should I do it? And of course, there could have been choices like you know I could have chosen between Chicago. New York, uh, maybe even looking back at Iowa in a sense, which seems like a little bit of a strange choice or an unusual choice. Uh, But then I thought that Hawaii could be a good place for what I wanted to study, which uh, was uh, voluntary risk-taking. So I enrolled in a PhD program there in uh, I think it was uh, August 2007. Yeah, it was. I was there for six months. I started this project on big wave surfing, which at the time was getting some kind of popular media attention. And then I transferred to Uppsala University where I finished my PhD project, uh, did other kinds of, did other kinds of research. and then when my PhD project was finished, then I started investing many, many you know many visits, many trips to the North shore of Hawaii and also on Oahu. On um, on the South Shore, basically, and staying at the uh, UH Manoa. So it's a project that started a long time ago,
2: and then I picked up again later on. Excellent. And you tell me that you you told me in an email that you wrote this uh, book in a unique way, um, both structurally and and in format. Could you tell me a bit more about this unique uh, way of writing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the book itself
0: deals with risk taking. So I was thinking, what kind of risk taking am I willing to take at this point uh, in my career, which is a question that I, you know, is still is still with me now because I study, as you know, creativity, creative work across fields and through the life course. So I've done my articles, which are, you know, fairly technical. I mean, they're published in Sociological Theory, Social Psychology Quarterly, and I wanted to do something different with the book. I wanted in a way to, to take a big risk, and that was to try to address more than one audience, and that is the sociological, you know, social science, sociological audience, but also try to reach the general readership. So in a way, I was like, how can I combine uh, a project that is uh, theoretically grounded and uh, tries to make a theoretical contribution while writing in a way that is accessible uh, and in a way also that it could be appealing, evocative in a way, so that the regular folks may, may actually enjoy it and learn something about sociology. And also... For many years, I've been, uh, I would say hunted, but, uh, but maybe that's not the right word. But I've been, uh, I've been thinking about uh, how can I communicate, uh, you know, if I, if I spent so many years in school, in education, in learning about a craft, which is sociology, can I still communicate what I learned without using, dropping big names? And as you know, this book has, has quite a bit of theory but also quite a bit of description and also, I don't know, some history, some poetic, uh, you know, kind of language as well. But uh, basically, if I... I, if I can't, if if I'm able to, to, if I actually learn something, can I actually say it without, uh, without uh, you know being explicit about it? So the book went through several iterations where the the theory was in the structure of the book, in how I designed the project. Then I took it all out. Then I brought it back in. I was trying to find a balance. Now I don't know if I succeeded, but basically what I'm trying to do with this book as, uh, you know ambitious as it may sound was trying to find my my own voice my own style and uh, you know just by I guess having the que- the question I still have uh, you know maybe 30 40 years of my career to 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 see if I'm you know I would
2: be up to something or not but at least I'm thinking about it. Yeah and the nature of ethnography and the nature of interviews and and participant observation is is being able to uh, represent the voice of the, the audience well so those individuals who you are um, who you are interviewing who you are uh, watching and listening to making sure that their voice is represented in, um in the
0: write-up sure as a uh, as a you know, as well as you can do, of course, you're always some, selling someone short or, you know, something is, is never perfect. The project is never perfect. Now I'm seeing the faults in it, you know, as a, and I'm ready to move on to the next project.
1: Yes. But I'm
2: happy to talk to you about this one. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. And, and surfing is, is, is the topic at hand here. Um, excuse me, top it's the backdrop of this research. The topic is risk taking and and uh, and dangerous fun. But the backdrop that you used for this this topic is surfing. Could you tell me a bit about what the origin of surfing is? Yeah, I mean,
0: surfing is uh, you know it's uh, it's not even a sport. It's a, a traditional Hawaiian cultural activity that was gifted to the world from that beautiful archipelago, and it is an activity that is foundational for Hawaiian society and Hawaiian society prior to uh, you know, to, to the Westerners coming and eventually to the annexation, the forced annexation of Hawaii by the United States in 1898 uh, had a completely different uh, way of, uh, of of being organized. You know, for once, pre-contact Hawaiians uh, uh, devised an ingenious system of fish farming and along with agriculture and also other factors resulted in a, in a big supply of food and affording the Hawaiian population large amounts of leisure time, which basically they devoted oftentimes to surf. I mean, you can even think about the annual festival of the Ma- Mahiki, which lasted for three months during the winter and meant that Hawaiians could spend fully a quarter of the year surfing, which ultimately contributed to their mastery. Now, when uh, when uh, when there was a land division, and this was marked a big uh, a big difference between uh, you know pre-contact Hawaii and uh, and, and afterwards, uh, basically you have uh, uh, trading was supplanted was uh, was uh, changed towards a market economy, and this impacted uh, the indigenous population and the time that he had for leisure activities like surfing. So it was a sacred activity, and uh, you know it, w- it was incredibly important.
2: And then more recently, has the Western world had an impact on Hawaii and on this activity of surfing? Say it again, excuse me. Has the Western world had any impact on, on what surfing is today and how it may be slightly different than its or, or original form?
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, why gambling was very important in Hawaii? And was you know was a pastime that they used. So there were competitions. There were lots of activities around surfing, but it wasn't anything what what it would become later on. You know, of becoming like a competitive sport. Uh, since the 80s, there is a, f- a faction of surfers uh, that consider themselves soul surfers. And in, way, in a way, I think there's a scholar called Brown Taylor, who's, uh, who has written a book called Dark, uh, Dark Green Religion, and he argues that uh, this kind of movement should be considered a religious movement. And... Uh, now surfing, you know, much of a Hawaiian culture has been lost with the with the diffusion of surfing across the world. And of course, like with any subculture, you know, anytime that, that a subculture moves to another place, uh, there's some kind of, you know, adaptation to the local context. And oftentimes, this is, you know, there are very good things about this. There are also innovations, you know, the lack of resources may push you actually to do things a little bit in a different way. But what is... Uh, what, what in a way has been lost and now is somewhat also coming back in, in a sense is that uh, I, I recently listened to a podcast a podcast with an Hawaiian called Brian Kewalana and this podcast podcast was made by Jamie Briswick who's a surf journalist for the surfers journal it just came out a few I think a week ago and he talks about Hawaiians having a symbiotic relationship with nature as as a resource that is not to be owned so in a sense, now you have localism, you have people fighting for waves, and also that's that's part also about the technology of surfing. The style of surfing has completely changed because that's, that's at the beginning of the book because the craft of surfing has changed. Now you have you, people... People, in a way, want to destroy... There are many different kinds of surfing, but one style that is popular and often looked up upon and has been for many, many years, it's destroying the waves rather than dancing with the wave. And that means that also because of the diffusion of social media, people want to be uh, pictured riding the wave alone. And back in the day, it was very much about sharing and it was also about riding the same wave together. And, uh, and that was a way more... Communal in, in a sense, but also more fun. It was less about pleasure. You know, we can't go back. You know, we can't really. You know, we can rely on historical on historical uh, accounts, and we talk with we can talk with Hawaiians, and we can we can go to Hawaii now and still see how it is. But uh, but surfing was uh, was very much a family oriented activity where. You know, as, as I describe in my theory of fun that I developed with Gary, and I, and I think I pushed a little bit to new directions in this book. It's about uh, not only about me, 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 but it's about us. You know, the, the, we will talk about this, I guess, in the second part of the interview. But that that part oftentimes is lost, and, uh, and I think you know that there's something to, there's something to be said about being alone, about competing for waves, uh, about feeling like uh, you're, you're better than everybody else. But it's also a lot to be to be lost. And, and I think that in this sense, the theory we develop of fun as an application beyond the surfing, beyond leisure activities, it, it actually goes to basically any encounter. And I'm not naive uh, thinking that we can have fun with everybody. That's exa- that, that's not what, I, what we are saying or I'm saying. But I think that people should be aware of the mechanisms that make some activities like surfing or something else fun or not fun, because it's incredibly important for social cohesion, as well as, uh, you know, for, yeah, for, for many things.
2: And you get into the complexity of, uh, of surfing and how, uh, there, there are different types of surfing. And if I remember correctly, your focus, uh, in this research is on longboarding rather than, um, Longboard sur- surfing rather than shortboard sur- surfing is is that
0: accurate? No, th- no, that's not accurate. But uh, yeah. but it's okay. You know, there's there's lots of details in in the book. The first part is an historical part that sets the stage for for the narratives that comes after and the theory, which is which is intertwined with the narrative. But uh, no, the book deals with big wave surfing. Okay, uh, that's big, right. Big wave, w- b- wave yes. big wave. Yeah, but, but you knew this. But uh, but but you're right in a sense because to ride really big waves, usually you need a really big board because you need to match uh, you know you, you pedal faster on a bigger board so you can match the speed that you're pedaling with the speed at which a wave is moving so the bigger a wave is the faster it moves so you can't catch a, a very big wave on a very small board unless it is a particular kind of wave uh, which you know that, that's getting quite technical or, or, it, or you're actually towing to that wave by a jet ski. So, you know, you're not moved by arm power alone. But what's interesting about Hawaii and still Hawaiian culture, you know, I travel a lot in, in my life uh, to get better at uh, academia. And also because I was, uh, you know, I was skateboarding a lot when I was younger and I still do to some extent. But I noticed that in Hawaii, surfing seems to be very different. You know, it's not so much now there's a revival of surfing all different kinds of crafts, which have become kind of cool, hip in these last few years. But in Hawaii, that has always been the case. Hawaiians practice all sorts of wave riding. It was just a a way to be in the ocean. And Hawaiians often felt and still feel today more comfortable in the ocean than on land. Why today they feel more comfortable in the water rather than on land, that also has to do by the fact that, you know, they've been, you know they've been colonized basically by by the United States I mean that's that's a strong strong word but uh, you know there are scholars like Noé Noé Silva who have written among many others who have written a lot about this but uh, playing with waves that that's the basic idea you know who cares what you're riding? just go have fun that's uh, you know and then, of course, if you want to become a professional, specialize as much as you like. <laughs> but to get better, you like with like re- writing, even in academia, you have to try to experiment with different crafts. And for us, that would be doing a podcast and see what the mistakes we make, uh, doing you know, the, what I will think about after I, I've talked with you. Maybe we can shoot back and see how this could have done better or could have been done better or writing a book, writing a, a, an article, an opinion piece. And and that was what surfing was about. Surfing in an Hawaiian society was, you know, you you ride anything. Who cares, you know?
2: And, and and this gets into maybe the three primary reasons that people tend to get into big wave surfing: at, um, like fame and fortune, peers and community, and and fun. And, and fun is distinct uh, distinct from those other two categories, right? Uh, I'm not sure of the last two, but uh, but uh, fame
0: certainly, you know. Uh, no one until very, very recently uh, started big wave surfing because of uh, money and uh, maybe fame. Yeah, that that played some some into it even quite early, say 40s, 50s, and 60s. But uh, but now it does a lot more because uh, because of media. You know, you can be seen. Everybody can become famous for a few minutes, and uh, that's a, that's also very good. But uh, but uh, there's a downside to it. You know. But uh, at the very beginning, as uh, I think there's a there's a, a member of uh, of a pioneering crew uh, who basically invented towing surfing, and uh, he's a surfer who, who basically said that one of the is it's in the book. I haven't interviewed him. I found the interview during, uh, you know, I was listening to him talking during a, a big wave surfing competition. But he, but he says that when he was commenting, he said, "You know why I became a big wave surfing? Because of stupid peers. You know, people basically friends pushing one another, and uh, at the beginning there was there was a lot of it. Now, now maybe a, a little bit less, but it's still underground and uh, enough, and it still requires uh, very much dedication. You know, it's 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 difficult. It takes effort, much less than before because of the, the technological developments that have been happening in terms of safety devices, but. Uh, but yeah, it's a group kind of thing, you know. It's uh, people don't often go surf big waves alone, you know. They do, but but you know, usually they, they want to have somebody else with them, and you know, and the fear of death and, and and getting seriously injured is a big equalizer, you know, in bringing people
2: together. And you were out on the waves too, right? I mean, for this research, and you had people pushing you. Is that correct? I,
0: I was forced. That, that's at the beginning of the book you know, I get to meet all these people and, uh, You know, during my first day in Hawaii, someone wanted to take me out on a jet ski. On a jet ski that uh, that they used the night, the evening before, but then it broke down, and the two guys who were riding the jet ski had to swim back to the shore. The next uh, the next morning, I went with one of those guys to rescue the jet ski. I was there while he was fixing it, kind of fixing it. That's what he was saying, but it looked very DIY to me. You know, very kind of had sketchy. And then in the evening, he wanted to take me out on the jet ski, and I. I'm not doing this. There's no chances, and maybe for the good, maybe for the bad. I didn't at that time. Now the second time around, when I came back, one of the one of the one mentor of a, of a crew basically said, "You can't just talk to us. You have to come out with us, and you're doing this this afternoon." And I remember my feet shaking. I mean, I felt like you know I, I was gonna I was gonna fall down, but uh, there was no way no way I could have said no because the project would have would have basically broke down, would have come to a, to a halt. And, uh, and that you know and that was it.
2: It was the, the beginning of my journey. But it's a big decision, right? It, when when people come into this um, this career, this uh, this craft, they have to count counterbalance between you know the options that are available and some of the uh, things that they're going to have to give up as a result of you know going to uh, going to other places where the waves are big.
0: Yeah, pe- you know, as I said, people, it takes a lot of commitment and because you have to be very fit and especially this was the case before safety devices were available, which made the sport both safer uh, and also more dangerous because you have basically newcomers like me who without, uh, you know, the first time I went out, I felt pretty strong, but, uh, you know, I, I definitely skipped some steps. The very first day I pedal out at Waimea, on one of the two biggest days I've ever been out there. But uh, and safety devices allow you to do that. But if you don't skip the steps, you have to be trained, you have to be conditioned. And back in the day, surfers, because they did not have a leash, and there was no, you know, there were no lifeguards. There were no jet skis. Uh, uh, there were no forecasts. You know, it was extremely difficult to, to predict the weather. And why it's a place where you can be in the water looking at the ocean, and the ocean looks, uh, looks flat. It looks, uh, you know, kind of, you, know, you kind of see something moving, but it looks flat. And then all of a sudden, you have the first set of the new swell, and the waves come, you know, they double, triple in a matter of uh, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, maybe less. And people, you know, they really panic. Now, now, this happens a little bit less because of forecast. Back in the day, uh, you know, you were watching it happen. So surfers were, big wave surfers were an elite, elite, smaller, basically a subculture within a subculture, as uh, William Finnegan put it, uh, put it in the, as, as he blurbed my book. But they were also extremely fit. They were all extremely good swimmers. And now oftentimes that's not the case surfers even regular surfers they, they don't really think about you know getting better at swimming because they rely on their board being some kind of a, you know buoy that will save them but you know if you're in Hawaii, weights waves are pretty strong the 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 we the leash may break the board may break uh, you know it's it's a really wild environment uh, so <clears throat>
2: And then you even um, go into a bit more um, about potential consequences of this uh, big decision, and you talk about the limited number of jobs that are available during the winter months in uh, uh, in Hawaii, as well as you know some of the other consequences, more personal like alcoholism and drug addiction that may come with this uh, big wave surfing culture.
0: You know yeah this, this, this is true. you know there's uh, Hawaii it's, uh, it's a beautiful place. Uh, I hate the word uh, paradise. that's not the word I want to use, but lots of people use it. but there's a big flip side to to paradise. And the flip side is that the Native Hawaiians of course uh, they are the ones suffering the most. It's uh, the state in the United States where I think it's uh, this is, this is in the second part of my book in I think chapter three, where the likelihood of getting shot by a policeman, it's the highest maybe in the U S or one of the highest. The infrastructure is one of the worst, uh, jobs are, uh, you know, you don't, you, you can't have one job. You need to have two jobs. And if you have a family, you know, it, it gets incredibly complicated. And, uh, And people are just too many, especially on the island of Oahu. Traffic is terrible. Uh, Yeah, it's a a very tough place. And then if you go to the North Shore, the North Shore, it's a very small community. In a way, it's an ideal setting if you want to do an ethnography, because, you know, our discipline is it thrives in place. And finding seven miles where you have the largest concentration of world-class waves, And uh, people coming and going from all over the world over the winter months, which is the only time when this part of the island actually gets waves. The rest of the time, it's flat. And during this time, they can be very big and very, very good. Uh, And then a local population makes this place for, you know, a place of extreme inequality. And, uh, and also danger, but danger not only in the water. You have to watch out what you do outside of the water. And, uh, you know, you know, Hawaiian, culture. You know, it's a, uh, it's a lot about humidity. It's about respect. It's about uh, aloha. It's about kokua, reciprocity. It's extremely good. But there's also people who, you know, who abuse these. Uh, there are people who are, you know, they, they just want to live in paradise, and then their, their, the problems catches up on them. So you see all sorts of crazy things. And you meet some of the most beautiful people. And oftentimes you meet them on the beach, in the water, and they, they make you part of their family. So anthropologically speaking, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a wonderful place not to visit or to visit many times and, and to live. It's a little bit difficult.
2: So now I want to shift sort of to the second part of this interview that you mentioned earlier, and, I, and I, I think I've organized this around the concept of fun and how it's different than, than pleasure. Could, could you talk a bit more about you know, this, this concept of fun and, and how it is different than pleasure?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the, first, is, the first distinction would be uh, pleasure is personal while fun is social. Uh, So, in a sense, you know, Gary and I, in our first uh, sociological theory paper, we described fun, and I'm I'm reading from, from the paper, as a collaborative and unscripted sequence of action that produces and is perceived as producing joint hedonic satisfaction while delineating group identity and establishing boundaries to those who do not belong. Now, in this new... In this new work, uh, I build on this, and I and I also argue that fun is one pathway among many others to solidarity. So shared fun and thus social acceptance and the delight in becoming and realizing oneself within the social, as Aristotle would put it, promotes bonding among friendship groups. So you have, in a way, the duality of hedonic and eudaimonic and it results in uh, two main outcomes and that is you know the kind of positive feeling that randall collins talks about when he describes uh, what he calls emotional energy and it is confidence drive enthusiasm and a sense of solidarity among those who share it so an aftermath of what emil Durkheim, in his study of religious religious rituals identified as collective effervescence and fun moments are basically successful encounters that generate uh, in my view uh, uh, an emotional energy that is, sim- that is similarly measure across all participants so there are, you know i spend 20 20 30 pages in the book talking about fun and the and the elements that constitute it. but one one other thing that it's i think it's important is that it is autotelic in the sense that it cannot be forced and there's a there's an element of spontaneity uh, constraint built on the group's uh, idiosyncra- idiosyncratic culture, and also elements of unpredictability and surprise. I think it was Mead that, uh, that at one point, you know, in, in his big book, Mind, Self and Society, it says that uh, there is a, there is a distinct, distinct satisfaction in being in situations where one can freely engage in impulsive expression. And, uh, and I see this in fun, in fun that there's a tension. And the tension is that you can say whatever you want because you know that, uh, you know, you're, you're in a situation with, with someone who knows you. In the case, you, you, you already have pre-established trust, so you can take risks. But at the same time, you want to live up to the expectations of your friends. So it is freeing, but it's also exciting. It's also, you know, doing and basically egg each other's own. And, and that, of course, builds on ideas. If you want to connect that to groups, builds very well with the with the work on creative groups by Michael Farrell on what he calls collaborative circles.
2: And with this uh, with this concept of emotional energy, it's not something that comes and goes. It's always in existence uh, and, and always being exchanged. Is that correct? That's that's absolutely correct. And that's you know that's.
0: Randall Collins in his uh, wonderful book on interaction ritual chains talked about uh, exactly the idea of trains of, of chains then some people have actually argued I think was uh, was a Canadian sociologist who said hey why don't you call it trains and no, I, I stick to the chain metaphor but the idea is that you enter situations with a residue from previous interactions so if you enter a situation where you build emotional energy and that uh, C- Collins is very explicit about how you do that there are elements there are there are factors Factors that make sure or enable you to actually gather emotional energy, uh, you enter a new situation from the previous one with the residue of that kind of energy. And, uh, and this can build up over time, over a day, over a week. It's something that's cumulative. And you see that extremely successful individuals are actually quite good, at the, are actually very good. They're masters at navigating situations so that they, they, they tend to avoid getting bogged down. As I write in the book, they, they, they politely refuse an invitation to dance, that is, to participate in interactions that they know will bring them down. How can you know an interaction will, will bring you down? Well, you know, that's, that's what Collins would call forced ritual. And then, if you couple that, because I, I try to, I, my work is a little bit of a critique of Collins as well as an extension, and uh, and of course that's that's the theory part. But uh, uh, you know, the, the, there is a build up, and, uh, and you can also know, as I was saying, we, which kind of situations to avoid. But uh, but when it builds up, uh, even over a day, people notice. I mean, it, it's really. You know, so basically you think about an encounter every time there is an encounter with someone new, especially you have a chance to recreate yourself, which is, you know, it gives you a challenge, but it's also an opportunity. And, uh, you know, say you go to a conference, you start well, the conference, the first day goes well, you gather energy, uh, you don't drain other people energy off you, you people feed off you and, uh, you know, it, it is reciprocal. You move through different stages of the conference that at the end you're flying. And maybe in the evening you go out and you still feel that energy. And it's because you've been through a series of interactions that were successful. And, you know, when that happens, it's magic. And so I guess everybody would want to know how how to get this kind of, you know, big high, because uh, you feel more alert. And also as Collins would say, much more energetic. And then if you couple this with my ideas and Gary's ideas on fun, you feel much closer to other people. And that's, you know, that's, A basic human need, bonding, you know, feeling cohesive, feeling strong with someone else.
2: So a successful encounter is is fun? A successful encounter is fun. Uh, I would say so. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, in order for this... It's
0: it's one that I was saying before, generates... uh, emotional energy of similar measure across all participants so everybody pretty much walks away with the same kind of because you know sometimes leaders get energy from their followers but they drain their energy so you know that's not really fun and that's a key idea that i want to stress because you know it seems that some of the ideas on fun are intuitive. But are intuitive to the extent, uh, yeah. I, I guess that once you put them down, you think about it. Uh, you know, there's something more than just intuition. With you know, our work is built on classics, and and I want to emphasize that Gary and I went back and read, the, you know, Durkheim, Zimmel, uh, Mead, uh, and then of course Goffman, and we rely on these you know original foundational work in sociology. And uh, and you know, one small takeaway about the idea of fun, it it, it is active enjoyment. So it depends on the active participation. Of those who are involved. So you you have to make sure that everybody's on track. And not everybody can have fun with everybody. That's also part of the deal. You know, um, I think about a good skateboarding session, a good skateboarding session in a ramp where everybody really faces one another. So there is a lot of looking, you know, basically being aware of one another, which is a key component in Randall Collins' theory, is that if you, are, if you are very good and you just show up, show, you, know, you, you show everybody that you're super good and you just go next level and you don't even pay attention to the others, you know, people will basically, if they are skateboarders who have somewhat of a history, somewhat grounded, they will vibe you off. They say, you know, we, we don't need you here. While in a in a really good scenario, then you have the guy or woman who's working on their trick, which maybe it's not very hard, but it's hard for them. And, and then you're working on something else. Everybody's working so that they make sure that at the end, everybody achieves what they came to achieve. And if that happens, then... The result is collective. We all did it. We all celebrated. This is a gathering. You know, so I want to stress this part because it's very easy to forget you know just me playing no let's play together and you cannot play with everybody you know not every personality matches well with with everybody and at the end i kind of i kind of end somewhat in a, in a, in a, in a line about boundaries which i think are important but one thing i don't say at the end of the, the book which i wish i would have said is that if you're a leader and you know these theories some people know them intuitively they're just great you know great with people you got to make sure you bring everybody up if you want to do that if you just want to smash other people and look cooler than everybody else, go ahead and do that, but that's pleasure, that's not fun. You probably would not make many friends doing that way. And the idea about fun is that it reverberates through time. So if we do something together, it could be tragic, it could be fun, you know, it could be it could become fun in the aftermath. But if but if it is a successful encounter,
2: then we'll talk about it
0: years later and it will be a bonding, it will be
2: something really powerful. Yeah, you talk about a mentor and a leader being part of that interaction ritual chain and helping build that person person up. Uh, As you mentioned, there fun fun cannot just fun can occur sporadically, but there are boundaries there are uh, there is an importance also in the small group and the communal experience uh, of having this fun.
0: Yeah, and there are different roles. I mean, Michael Farrell, in his pioneering work on collaborative circles, talk about different roles and the different kinds of roles you need for groups to function. And he's not the first, but he comes from a small group tradition that goes all the way back to to Bills. And, you know, to to some extent, small extent, also to Milgram. But, you know, it's hard to say which role is more important than, than another. But you can say which role may be more important than another at different points in time in a group. Now, I want to make you an example. One of my collaborators, his name is John N. Parker, and now he works at the University of Oslo. And we wrote a paper together published by Sociological Theory, in which we we basically uh, argue for a family of collaborative circles across fields. So in a way, we go a little bit against against, uh, Mike Farrell's work, and then we lay out different hypotheses that will predict how groups in science and art will operate differently long story short I'm, I'm closing the circle as, uh, as they say I uh, you know I, I go to, to one, one, uh, one research meeting that John organizes with Ed ackett in North Carolina and it's about synthesis groups. So he brings together different scholars from different fields, uh, from philosophy to, you know, all sorts of all sorts of fields. And I'm quite intimidated because I'm a new member of the group, and so are uh, other people, even though I've known John for a long time. And John is a very, very, very good leader. I noticed now from the beginning, he started off which is, we, we he has a very cool style by saying, okay, this guy is an expert on this, this woman is an expert on this, and he's done amazing work. Hugo's an expert on small groups. He gave everybody some kind of foundational standpoint so that none of us will feel as intimidated to speak. I mean, there was a philosopher that while we were speaking, he was translating basically into equations what we were saying. I mean, I didn't understand what the hell he was saying, but still, I felt comfortable enough to, to give my, you know, my contribution to the meeting. So as a leader, he was extremely good that, you know, at uh, making sure that everybody could participate and felt
1: welcome about it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. And it was,
2: it was an interdisciplinary, I um, totally,
1: mean, is totally, that
0: accurate? Totally, totally. And most of the times, you know, these kind of works, these kind of things do not really work or are hard to work. And I would say that the, the main thing to make these kind of groups work is friendship. Do you like these people? Would you actually voluntarily spend time with them doing nothing? Would you, as John would say, would you get stranded on an island with them? You know, and if the answer is yes. Yeah, probably these are the kind of people that you will want to work with. Because you know, difficult work that is re- that is risk-taking, from surfing to science to art, it, you know, entails a lot of uh, a lot of you and also a lot of self-disclosure and a lot of faith into you know into basically doing things that are risky that are against the status quo, and uh, like writing a book or you know and try to do it a little bit different, or or let alone trying to come up with a new paradigm in science or.
2: Yes, I remember that in that article, the uh, gatekeeper playing a major role there to make certain that people are able to get along.
0: Yes, yes. The gatekeeper, of course, is the first one because it's the one that brings people together. Yes.
2: So no gatekeeper,
0: no group, right? Yes.
2: (laughs) And, and, you know, I think at the... um, at the maximum state of fun you mentioned this this concept of flow state uh is that kind of the the hot spot the you know the the maximum amount of you know, fun that can be had
0: uh that's a good question that's a good question i don't know you know the idea of flow i i, I write about i obviously write about it in the book And also Jeff Kidder writes about it. And Jeff Kidder is one of the best scholars now working on ideas like edge work and flow, in my opinion. And I think that, you know, the idea of flow is that you kind of lose yourself in flow. So in a sense, you kind of lose track of time. So that's optimal experience. But if you take another key idea in my book, which I think I contribute from, from, you know, theoretically and also analytically as I organize the book is the idea of edge work. And to me, edge work, these are, you know, this is a concept, is the first, maybe the first theory, the first theory of voluntary risk taking in sociology, which was published published in AJ, American Journal of Sociology in 1990. And Ling uh, argues for, for this theory, and edge work is basically. Pushing yourself over certain kinds of edge, edges, which uh, you know if you cross in the wrong place uh, too much, you could actually die or you you could really get hurt. Now, this involves a very long long span of time. In my opinion, it involves preparation. It involves waiting for waves. It involves l- lots of collaboration, even with other people. And then within those longer this longer time period, you have flow moments, which are moments in which you don't even remember what has happened. And then you need the other person who basically tells you, can recount to you what, what you two have shared together because you're so focused and so excited that, you know, your vision becomes very narrow. But uh, but the two things go together. You know, edge work is something that is done with other people and flow can be achieved both in group as well as as, well as alone. And, and, you know, I don't like the idea of, you know, alone. How, how, are we ever completely alone? As long as we are, obviously, you know, so psychologically, we are never completely alone. We're always thinking about someone else. So, you know, maybe, maybe, I don't know if I answer your question, but, uh, but I hope that someone will be interested enough to read that part in the
2: book where I try to combine edge work, flow, and fun. Well, one, I think one of the things that that at um, least was brought out to me is that edge work is not recklessness. Edge work is is working with other people in this fun experience, because if a person was reckless in these groups, they would be they would be excommunicated or left out of the group because they would be seen as a, uh, I think, danger to the group.
0: Oh, they are, they are, and now and now because of uh, you're totally right, and because of uh, safety devices like. Uh, you know jet skis that uh, come and rescue. You. you know sometimes they even say you're on your own because you're stupid and uh, you can make it on your own. Maybe you get hurt in the shore break. Say if you're surfing, that uh, that uh, I know that that has happened. But uh, you also can wear flotation vests. Now there are people skipping steps. And, uh, you know, it becomes more dangerous for, for for everybody. Now, edge work, you're right, is not about taking chances. You know, you take chances, but to an extent. You know, as one of my respondents say, Chris Owens, who's an underground figure on the North Shore, which is part of what I do with this book. You know, it's also a memory of a community. I talk about people who are underground, but known in that local community. So it's somewhat of an anthropological study as well. But I also talk about people who have changed the field, very famous figures, you know, who, who are famous in this sport. And, uh, you know, the idea is that d- d- something will eventually go wrong because, uh, because uh, you know, just the nature of the game. It, it is extremely, it is dangerous, this sport. You could drown, you can hurt yourself. Lots of things can go badly, but you have to prepare as much as you can. And uh, so there is an element, there certainly is an element of calculation, but at one point you just have to throw the, you know, throw the, you know, see, see what happens. And, and I guess that the better people get and that's the second part of the book where I talk about the idea of, you know, the, distinct, the analytical distinction between uh, typology that I make between chargers and sharpshooters. The sharpshooters are those who take very selective risks because they, have, they, have, they are old enough, they are good enough. They are individuated enough that they are. They don't need to prove anything. Anything small to anybody. They, if they want to do something, they want to do something big. So, in the sense, the better you become at the sport, the less waves you 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 take, and the less trips around the world, if you're tra- if you're a traveling surfer, you you take because this all increases the chance of you getting hurt. So, a, an approach that lots of surfers model themselves. Two is that of, of a surfer called Greg Long, who will sometimes sit for hours and hours and hours outside, out in the lineup, beyond everybody, towards the horizon, for waiting for that outlier one wave. That may come or may not come. And if it doesn't come, the guy paddles right back in. Uh, Shane Dorian, who's a respondent in my study, uh, Shane will say, you know, if, you know, a 15-foot wave doesn't do anything for me. It keeps me sharp. Sure, it's fun, but, you know, I got a family. I got, I got stuff, you know, I, and I'm, I'm very busy. For my career, I want something that is called a career way, wave, something that will be remembered and hopefully will move the needle a little bit for the next generation. So he says, if I go up to Jaws, and Jaws is on Maui, it's a, the most perfect big wave on the planet. It's, a, it's like amazing. It's beautiful. Uh, if I go there and I take my first big wave, exactly what I was looking for, because I know what I'm looking for. And I take it at the beginning of the session. I pack my bags and leave, go back to my family, or I go on a jet ski and watch my friends. And of course, that's extremely difficult to do because you get excited, you know? So it's really difficult to, 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 to basically stop yourself from catching the wrong waves. And once you have caught it, to actually not wanting to take another one. And I think that these kind of ideas can also apply for our career you know, in terms of academics, uh, scholars, uh, writers, uh, whatever field, wh- wh- what's your next dream? What are you chasing? You can't chase everything, but uh, so wh- wh- what do you want to be a member for? What, uh, what do you want to, you know, risk everything for? And uh, I think it's, uh, that's also why, you know, I don't know if I took a big risk with my book, but to me, at least it felt that way when I was doing it. I was like, you know, I'm going to take a risk. Maybe people won't like it, but I'm going to learn something
2: in oh, order I for this to I happen. To yeah yeah, in order for this to happen, uh, I think that it's anchored also in place, space and time. So uh, with your career and with this book and with the risk that you took, uh, maybe it was maybe it was just uh, you know uh, it, it, it couldn't have happened in another place or space or time. There was something about this uh, serendipity that, that allowed it to occur.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I like to call it pursued luck. Uh, I'm a kind of person who, who learns a lot by traveling. I spend lots of time alone, very, very much time alone, but I'm very social. And I also go to different parts of the world to meet people that I, you know, whether they're scholars or whatever field they're doing to try to learn from them. And I thought about this project for a long time. In fact, I started my PhD at UH Manoa thinking about this book, but then I thought the time is not right. You know, I need to get the articles down and I love the articles. I'm very proud of them. I think they are, they are original, which I think it's something important. I'm not producing just to produce, but I'm trying to do things that, that, that my heart is and that, that I believe in it. And then once I, I, I got those down, I was like, OK, now I'm going to try this next step. And uh, yeah, now we'll see what's next.
2: And even in Big Wave Surfing, I think one of the interesting pieces is you talk about how the different areas of the island um, had different experiences. And uh, depending on level of expertise, depending on how crowded a person wanted uh, to... Ex- uh, how crowded they wanted their experience to be, they would choose different uh, different areas of the island.
0: For sure, for sure. I mean, Hawaii, you know, uh, I don't remember if it was... Uh, I think it must have been... Uh, it must have been... Uh, you know, Toro, in his book, in his new book on Under the Wave at Waimea, talks about the fact that, uh, but I don't think it's the first one, but, uh, but he put it in a beautiful way that I wish I would, I would remember now. He says that, you know, the outside breaks, the surfing breaks on, on Oahu are, you know, are, are, are so important for local culture and they are all so different. Each of them has their own distinct culture. And, you know, if you go to pipeline, pipeline is where people make a career. You know, one wave there, the wave of the winter, for example, could launch your career or could kill you because it's the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous wave on the planet. Uh, So there you have some kind of culture. You go somewhere else, the culture is very different. And and that is interesting because, you know, you wouldn't think that the moving... uh, you know, 100 feet over, you will basically find a bar that has a, that has a completely different kind of regulars, different kind of wave. So it's an interplay of resources, which are natural resources, and the people that populate the place, and the history of the place as well. And, uh, you know, the, the, the ocean has as much history or more, actually, in Hawaii, than than actually the land. I mean, to some extent, or, or just as much. You know, if you, if you don't want to go back to ancient Hawaiian history, which lots of people unfortunately forget now uh, but yeah
2: so now we're getting to the uh, next stage of of you know what happens after big wave surfing that is aging out or roll exit what is that process what does that process look like well I was as I was
0: saying people tend to take uh, you know they're more selective as they age and lots of surfers and you know big wave surfing wasn't Old man sport back in the day. Now you have uh, you have all sorts of people. It's it's very heterogeneous. Also because of the you know the popularity of the sport, social media, but also safety devices. You know, back in the day, you had to be extremely committed, and and uh, and you had to you know a, a, a surfboard shaper will not sell you a surfboard called Gun to surf big waves. And why not? Even though he knew you were good because he did not want to take on the responsibility of you maybe drowning or hurting yourself and that's uh, you know that's that's an example I have in the book now now you can even me i can go to a shop as i did buy a gun and they're called guns and fire it and go out and people will not stop me you know i will you know lifeguards have some kind of kind of power but not super much Uh, I I think ultimately they can't stop you. They can just, and and that's part of of the book because at one point, you know, I take an artwork kind of perspective using Becker. So I try to to do something that is called maximum variation sampling and try to sample across different positions within the field. So I wanted to make sure that I also represent the lifeguards and the lifeguards, coming back to the point that I was making, they cannot stop you and you can basically fool them and you can still go out there. Uh, So... um, Back in the day, it was very much of an old man kind of sport so someone became good at surfing and then at one point where they just wanted to rely on their strength and knowledge of the water, they actually started big wave surfing. Now now it is a little bit different so, we don't know how people will age out, but you know it's uh, it takes a lot of effort, especially if you don't live on the North Shore. And if you live somewhere else, there are people who migrate like it would be the Mecca every winter and they stay on the North Shore three months just to surf big waves. And think about what kind of commitment that is. You have to find a job that will be flexible enough. You have to train during the year. Otherwise, you're going to drown or, or not perform well the first month or get hurt. And then you have to be able to learn how to, and that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the interesting, that part of the interesting part is how do people keep going despite collecting such high number of injuries? Because you know, injuries stack up they resurface, they come back, and the older you get, the longer time it takes to basically heal. So the really good surfers are those who really pace themselves, and usually takes failing, and I use the word failing on purpose because it applies to other fields, Smartly as a way to say, okay, I need to do this better. I need to get better. What can I do to actually, you know, overcome this the next time and, and become even stronger at the end, which most of the times that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a little bit of self-belief. It's not really the case because you never go back to be as strong as you once were. But, uh, but you know, if you, if you train better, you can still turn something negative somewhat into a positive. So, which is you
2: know, the importance of the wipeout
0: yeah the importance of the wipeout which happens you know, in everybody's life you know how do you pick yourself up you know i'm a skateboarder i said this before uh, and I, and I'm, this has been a part of my life a part big part of my life and i still think it is i'm i'm very uh, i feel much joy every time i push on a skateboard even if i put on skateboard shoes i feel i feel some kind of, you know, joint coming into me because of the memories I have. But skateboarding, it's really painful sport. You fall all the time. So it's really about falling. You fall all the time. So unless you learn how to fall, you're not going to be a skateboarder. So you're really going to, you know, learn to pick yourself up and learn how to fall, how to roll, not to let, you know, a bad interaction bring you down. How can you, you know, turn it into
2: something else, keep going? And that's very hard, you know. Well, it's a tax on the emotional energy, right? It's it's an ongoing, continued exchange, not only with one another, but also with the uh, the experience that is being had. Absolutely, absolutely. Excellent. This has been a, a great talk, Hugo. Um Unfortunately, we are um, running a bit short on time, but there is one last question that I want to ask, and that is, what are you working on now? What's the next project? Where do you take this from here?
0: Well, you know, as I said before, I'm working on creativity across fields, so I'm going to think about the the next book project, and what I'm doing now besides a number of papers I'm working on, and one of them is based on, uh, you know, that the uh, the two papers I wrote with Patrick Aspers on defining the meaning of qualitative in qualitative research, and that paper tries to look at different standards of valuation. Evaluation for different styles of work within sociology, and uh, and then I have other papers. I'm working on a paper now with Gary. Uh, but in terms of book, I'm trying to find, uh, I you know, I'm trying to find a new project, and I don't know how immersive it will be. But I would like to learn a craft or a skill, and, uh, and you know, and devote as much as hopefully one year of, of my time doing fieldwork, which is at my age and st- stage of career is quite rare. But, uh, but that's what I'm leaning, I'm leaning towards, but I'm not jumping into anything that quickly because, uh, you know, I would probably do a pre-study and then once, uh, once I have a, a good enough of idea, then, I, you know, I'll pull the trigger as they say, and just go for it. And it's all, f- all for the best. Right.
2: Yeah. Once a field worker, always a field worker though. Right. So when, when you're away from the field, you, maybe it's just me, but you get a bit uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's, there's something about being backstage too. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's exciting also. You know, the most rewarding part, or one of the most rewarding parts of writing this book have been, uh, of course, the people I met in the field, but also the people that I got a chance to interact with because of the book. Say the University of Chicago Press, the people there have been amazing. That was my dream. I said, I either make Chicago or I don't do the book. I'm that, you know, I'm that kind of, a, of an intense person. I set myself a goal and I'm pretty narrow. I say, I'm making it no matter what. And if I don't make it, I quit. And uh, once I made it, I realized, uh, you know, how beautiful it was because uh, it was extremely rewarding working with people who really cared and are extremely smart and, and they have such an experience. So even time away from the field can be, can be good. But, uh, yeah, I'm a field worker and I, I want to get better at it. So, you know, next project. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and Chicago is where it's at, though. For it has such the history of of uh, participant observation and and field work, and you know, using the, the city as a lab.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. That that was you know that was my dream, and it's uh, one dream that it became a reality. And um, I'm extremely
2: grateful. It was it was memorable. Um, well, thank you for being on the show today, and I hope that we will continue this relationship, and that you, uh, you'll me too. be be on my show for uh, for the next book.
0: For sure, for sure. So, thank you so much, Michael.
2: Again, this is a, a New Books Network episode. This is New Books in Sociology, and my name is Michael Johnston. Have a great day. Hello, everyone. This is Michael, again, with New Books in Sociology. Um, we're back for a, a short piece with uh, Hugo Corte about Theory of Faithful, moment, faithful Moments. And uh, I... I, I would hate to not include this, because it was a major part of the book. It was a theory that Ugo um, created with the, as he was conducting his research. So, um, Ugo, could you tell me a bit more about this theory of fateful moments?
0: Yeah, the theory of fateful moments in Dangerous Fun that I developed is based on Goffman's work on action, and also, in particular, Anthony Giddens' work on fateful moments. Uh, Giddens defines the fateful moments Times, and I'm quoting him, times when events come together in such a way that an individual stands, as it were, at a crossroads in his existence, or, where, or, or when a person learns information with faithful consequences. In my work, I refer to the first of these qualifications of the concept meaning. And I argue that these moments both threaten one's securities and well-being and offer the potential to alter our life's trajectory. So in my, my conceptualization, which is a concept that goes through from the beginning of the book until the very end, so it is through different phases in a surfer's career, uh, I argue that a fateful moment is one that leads to a transformative change in one's identity, a decision to step into a social role that is both desired and feared, and which, one's chosen, chosen changes one's self-concept irrevocably. And, uh, and further, I argue that when such moments are successful, they are distinguished by intense interactions generating high levels of em- emotional energy that typically take place before and after the fateful moment. And uh, yeah, we'll see. This is, a, you know, this is a, the, the cons- one of the concepts that I, that I develop uh, in, uh, in, in my book, and I hope that uh, other scholars will find it useful.
2: Yes, and and the next step then is to um, is to use it to test it to see if it's replicable across a variety of different uh, extreme situations.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, and I think it is. I think, it, I think it is.
2: I think it's very valuable. I think that uh, there needs to be extensions of past theories like Goffman's and applying it to to um, everyday situations today, like they were yesterday.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Definitely building on the past.
2: Yes. Thank you again, Hugo, for joining me today on New Books and Sociology, a channel on New Books Network.